My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Coming to you from the inaugural CNBC CEO Council in Santa Barbara, California. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to make a little money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. Call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. We all want our stocks to be immune to the day-to-day gyrations of the market or the slow drip of news about the economy. But they can't be. They're as hostage to events as anything else. They go up and down, often for reasons that have nothing to do with their actual business. Because in the short run, there's only a gossamer-thin connection between stock values and the enterprises they represent. So what do you do when the vicissitudes of the market get your portfolio? For example, on a day like today, this one, terrible. Dow lost 231 points. S&P plunged 1.12%. NASDAQ plummeted 1.26%. A truly hideous day that was very reminiscent, frankly, of the 2011 sell-off where the market fell 19% because of, you guess it, a debt ceiling fight. Well, you can solve it and go to glorious cash, enticing out the Fed's giving you something real good like 5% paper, and the market's starting to sense real trouble from a default. You can give up on stock picking and park everything in an index fund like so many experts tell you you should do. Or you can say, you know what? I'm going to put some money in an index fund, keep some in cash, earning a good rate, and then go find the stock of a company that makes something essential with tremendous staying power and management that knows how to deliver for both the consumer and the shareholder. In other words, you can own the stock of Apple. No Apple stock, not Apple itself, mind you, but its stock is not immunized against the debt ceiling debacle. If there's no deal, if our government ends up paying people in script, that's going to hurt every stock, including that of Apple, as people might need to sell all stocks to have some money to pay for essentials that would have been paid by Social Security or Medicare. If some analyst finds out that one of their component makers isn't firing on all cylinders, your stock will get hit. If interest rates spike, Wall Street will attach less value to Apple's future growth. That's just how the analyst models work. If the Fed tightens again in June, the stock might go down simply because it makes up 7% of the S&P 500, and the S&P is going to get slammed. It's the way it is. But if you look at Apple that way, I think you're doing it all backwards. What if you view each of these exogenous events, each pullback, as something different? How about as a buying opportunity? Bear with me. I know for a lot of companies that won't necessarily work. It's risky to bet on economically sensitive stocks when the Fed tightens. For example, you can't view every pullback as a buying opportunity when you're dealing with boom and bust business. But compared to something like a John Deere or Boeing, Apple's much more in control of its own destiny. And not just because it's got a great balance sheet, which makes it highly resistant to any debt ceiling related gyrations. Well, that certainly doesn't hurt. Apple's in control of its own destiny because it's the best at what it does. Just try taking an iPhone from someone. Good luck. There are so many dazzling new digital products out there, and Apple can give you them. The most obvious story in the world. Yet it so often seems lost on people. Apple likes to surprise us, as Eddie Q, the head of their services division, told me today here. But maybe what you want from your favorite company is what you want from, say, your favorite sports team. You want it to win a lot more games than it loses and ideally pick up some championships. In Apple's case, that's what CEO Tim Cook and his team, including Eddie Q on the services side, are trying to create. Emphasis on create. 
Apple takes something you didn't even know you needed and turns it into something that's indispensable. They've done this so many times because they're focused on the long haul and the customer, not on trying to move the needle for the next quarter. It's how you get Apple TV Plus, where they have an incredible sense of what you're going to want. Same goes for buy now, pay later, or the next watch iteration, or MLS. Yep, Major League Soccer. I want you to listen right now to what Q told me earlier today. I think it starts with saying no to a million things. We say no to almost everything, uh, to say yes to a few things. And hopefully those few things that you try to say yes to are, they, they have two things in common. Number one, they're things that we're good at or we think we can be very good at. And number two, the things that we think consumers are gonna value deeply and, and, and care about. And so when we look at things, that's, that's how we approach the problem and say, okay, we're gonna do something really great. But it starts by saying no, because when you get as large as we are, uh, it, it's easy to think you can do anything or everything. Um, and it's just not true. If you wanna, I don't know how to do a lot of great things. It's hard to do one great thing. And so we've been very, I think, very good about deciding. So when we're gonna go into sports, um, we didn't wanna just put our toe in the water, we didn't wanna put one game on, or we, we wanted to do something that, you know, I used the, I'll use the Gretzky quote, even though it's, we, we did soccer, it's like we, we wanted to go where the puck was going, not where the puck was. That's what he does. He skates to where the puck was going, not to where the, the puck is. And, and that's the same thing we wanted to do with sports. And so we looked at it, I'm a sports fan, we just, you can see that by what, I, just my, what I've said. I wanted to create something that if you're an MLS fan, you're gonna love. And if you're not an MLS fan, the first time you see it, you're gonna be like, wow, this is, this is really good. And, and that's what we've seen. I like goosebumps for the guy. <laughs> I mean, is that good? Look, I've had the privilege of watching Apple create not a few additional pennies per share. But something's really cool. Something that goes from non-existent to necessarily just pure necessity overnight. And that's how you get Apple's incredible levels of customer loyalty. It's why all my talks with Tim Cook and his brilliant CFO, Luca Maestri, start not with the quarterly numbers, but with customer satisfaction percentage, which are near 100%. That's what makes this company so extraordinary. No one else does it. No one. I mean, no one. Most companies don't even keep track of customer satisfaction. I think they're afraid to. For many companies, it's seen as meaningless and expensive, that kind of customer satisfaction. And in the short term, maybe it is meaningless, because in the short term, Apple stock is hostage to all the same things that plague the rest of the market. But long term, look, ideally, Apple wants everyone in the world as a customer. And I think only two things really impede their growth, cell towers and infrastructure. There are roughly 2.5 billion people in the world right now who haven't been woken up by Siri like I was at 245. Stop it, Siri. 2.45 a.m. this morning. Or they haven't been to an Apple store. I haven't watched Ted Lasso. I don't know. Well, well, no, they'll ultimately adopt what the developed world adopts. So it's really not that hard, people. It's why I always dismiss these downgrades of Apple based on seeming slowdowns in component orders. I mean, come on, that makes about as much sense to decide not to buy a Tesla because there are too many Teslas. Ultimately, when I listen to Eddie Q, as I did today, I'm reminded that the lifetime value of an Apple customer is worth more than any stream of revenue from any other consumer product company in the world. And that's for one simple reason. The customer's always right. If you make things with a customer in mind, not the cost, not the earnings per share, not the gross margins, if you say no to most ideas because they simply aren't good enough, then you can create something that might withstand the debt ceiling debacle or the rate hikes or the, or the bank failures. Sure, you care about this stuff when the stock's going down and this increasingly ugly market, that's it's going to happen. 
But that's precisely when you should see it, because you know that Apple's going to win for you. They're going to win far more often than they lose. A real good team. It's not just in the playoffs every year, but they're in the finals. Here's the bottom line. No stock can escape the daily gyrations of the market. But you've got a great company that knows how to give its customers exactly what they want and what they need, even if they didn't know it existed. Well, that's a stock you can buy in a market-wide weakness. At times like this, you want to circle the wagons around great businesses that have seized control of their own destiny. And nobody does that better than Apple and the fabulous people who run it. Let's take calls. Let's go to Keith in Wisconsin. Keith! Hey, a big phosphoro booyah for you, Jim. Well, holy cow, we served it last night. What's going on, my friend? I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm a club member, and I'd like you, your opinion yes. on this change in my portfolio. I'm uh, due to balance sheet and streaming and, and government issues. I'm thinking of, of getting out of the mouse house and buying more cat. Uh, I wish we didn't have to do an either or there. I think Disney at 89 is going to we're going to look back. I don't know how soon we're going to look back. But I think we look back and say, I can't believe I got it then. I can't believe I got it at 89. How'd that happen? How did I get so lucky? Cat, maybe not. And I like both of them very, very much. Hey, why don't we go to Tony in California? Tony! Mr. Kramer, Mr. Kramer. Hey, thank you again for all your energy and guidance. I've been a... Uh, I try to bring Libre it for about three years now, and it's doubled mm-hmm. since May. Do, should I keep on holding, or did I ring the register? Well, you can schnitz a little. You can schnitz a little, but I was an original investor in this one. I can't own stocks now. I original investor in Mercado Libre. I met these people who run it, and it was like, blow away, and they're only better now. Uh, let's go to Kenneth in Texas. Kenneth. Hey, Jim. You're one of my greatest stock market heroes. I love your show. Then I'm doing okay. What's happening? Hey, I wonder what you think of Ford and the, the future earnings, and is the dividend safe? I think that they're going to have $6 billion in cash flow. The street thinks it's going to be $2.7 billion. I think the street is wrong. I am banking with Jim Farley, the CEO. He said he's going to do the quarter last time. He did the quarter. It's a big position for the trust, and I only wish that I owned more. All right, listen to me. When I listen to Eddie Q, as I did today, I'm reminded that the lifetime value of an Apple customer is worth more than any stream of revenue from any other consumer product company, maybe ever. It's just part of why Apple is the stock to buy in the market-wide weakness that I am predicting while this debt ceiling wrangle goes on. From FinTech to cybersecurity, we got a big show out here at the CNBC Summit in Santa Barbara on Man Money Tonight. We're always looking for a way to capitalize on the rise of sustainability initiatives across the globe. And after recent acquisition, Carrier is set up to do just that. I'm digging into the story, getting the latest from the CEO. Then I've called in, you've called in, we're all asking about what is the deal with the SoFi, two years after its back debut. So I'm going straight to the source to get the answers to the questions that you keep asking me. And Palo Alto reported after the bell. Don't miss my post earnings exclusive with the company's top brass. So stay with Kramer from beautiful Santa Barbara, California.
Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. For the next couple of days, we're coming to you from CNBC's inaugural CEO Council Summit out here in beautiful Santa Barbara, California. Among other things, this event's about leading through change, how CEOs and attendants have navigated the complexity of the last few years, meaning the pandemic, the resulting supply chain numbers, rampant inflation, and now rapidly rising interest rates almost overnight. Take Carrier Global. That's the heating ventilation air conditioning company that was spun off by the old United Technologies in the spring of 2020, right as COVID hit. Since then, carriers had to cope with supply shortages, the ups and downs of the housing market, and a Fed tightening cycle, and real problems in non-residential construction. But if they're trying to take control of their own destiny, roughly a month ago, this company, Carrier, announced a major shakeup. They're shelling out 12 billion euros in cash and stock to buy Wiesmann Climate Solutions. That's a European company that makes energy-efficient heat pumps, boilers, and heating systems. At the same time, carriers getting out of their fire and security and commercial refrigeration businesses. I like these moves. The company's trying to make itself into more of a pure-play energy efficiency company, climate controls. But Wall Street hated them. The stock immediately plunged 7% on the news, and since then it's struggled to find traction, despite reporting a solid quarter a couple days later. Who's right? Earlier today, we got a chance to speak with Dave Gidley. He's the chairman and CEO of Carrier Global. Take a look. Dave, we're going to clear some things up. First, you reported a great quarter. Second, you made a brilliant acquisition. Let's do a do-over because the stock's been down. I think that's wrong. You've got the floor. Well, look, some business combinations are evolutionary. Our business combination with Wiesman is truly revolutionary. And it's really for two big reasons. One is growth. We are buying what is unquestionably the premier company in the most attractive market in the world, which is European residential heating. It's going to go through sustainable, predictable, hyper growth for as far as the eye can see. And we're coming together with what is literally the premier company in the space. And second is after we combine with Wiesman, we will be the only company in the world that has the combination of solar PV, battery heat pumps and a digital overlay for grid interface. So. We will be unlike any other company in the world, and the stock will do what it'll do. But as they see the power of the European residential heating market and the power of the combination, the stock will follow. We had a mild winter this year, and it made people forget what could be an existential threat to all the countries you're talking about, which is Russia. This may be the best way to wean the whole continent off of Russia. 100 percent. And that's essentially why the market is going through such sustainable, predictable growth, because what's happening is the residential heating market is a replacement market. 80, 90 percent of the market is replacement. Your heater fails, you're going to replace it. And because of partly because of what's happening in Russia, you have 17 countries that have passed regulation that require when your boiler fails, you have to replace it with an electric heat pump. And you sell an electric heat pump for three to four X what you sell a boiler for. And only about four percent of the continent has electric heat pumps today. That's why you have such sustainable and predictable and hyper growth. Well, I've been thinking one of the things when I talk people about this, they say boiler heat pump. They're the same thing. They don't know the technology. It's very different from what we think. One is clean and one's dirty. 100 percent. When you're talking about a boiler, it's either gas or oil or coal. 
when you're talking about a heat pump, it's electric. So that's why you have countries that are essentially, they've either, 17 countries either announced or banning boilers, whatever fossil fuel powers it, in, in requiring a clear transition to electric heat pumps. And if you picture the future of the world, everyone's going to get home about the same time, call it 6 p.m., plug in their cars, turn on their air conditioning or the heat pumps, because the heat pump does both air conditioning and heating, and you're going to put max demand on the grid between 6 and 10 p.m. So you're going to need someone who can kind of connect the dots with battery, with solar, and also do a proper grid management with the utilities. It's where the puck is going. It will be the only company that has that complete portfolio. All right. Now, you're offering a, a couple of assets that I frankly did like very much. And I always believed, by the way, as your predecessor taught me when it was all United Technologies, that safety always gets to be a growth market every single year. Is that uh, something that you want to lose? Well, they are great assets. We have announced that we're selling our fire and security businesses. But what I will tell you is that focus really matters. And we have a very clear focus, which is to be the global leader in intelligent climate and energy solutions. And as much as we love the assets, they don't fit to our, fit to our North Star. We found it when we spun from United Technologies. A focused company really helps. And as great as these businesses are, I think they will be worth more in the hands of someone else. And all of our investments, whether it's continued M&A down the road or organic investments, they are going to be laser focused on intelligent climate and energy solutions. How many installers will you have to be able to do this? And can it go global? Well, in, in Europe, uh, Wiesman is the only company that has direct-to-installer relationship, and they have 75,000 installers, and absolutely it can go global. So as we think about how to expand it, whether it's in Saudi or India or China or the United States, we have to look at the channel complexities. There's different complexities in every different market. But I think one of the things that really attracted Max Wiesman, who's the fourth generation of this 100-year-old family-owned business, is the idea of creating a true global climate champion. Okay. And if you look at our brands and our channels globally and the Wiesman chans, channel and their brands, certainly throughout Europe, this combination is unlike any combination that's ever been put together. So we will actually take their technology global. They have smart thermostats. They have digital capabilities. They have some of the best product portfolio in the world. We have great channel access. That combination is very powerful. So this acquisition basically says we're not an HVAC company. We're a climate solutions company. hundred percent. And a climate solutions company has got long-term staying power. And an HVAC company, I think, is a cyclical business, just like anything else. Well, one of the things that also smooths the cycles is subscription-based revenues. So they have a good part of their portfolio that is services. And that has helped smooth some of the cycles. And also, remember, a replacement business. It's actually quite predictable in Europe. You're going to have a certain number of boilers that fail every year. They are going to get replaced with something that's three to four X more expensive. Well, Dave, I, I get it. I understand it. I think it's right. Dave Thank you, Dibbon. sir. And I've got to tell you, uh, this reinvention, you ought to change your name. I'm yeah. not kidding. Yeah. <laughs> change your name. I think it would be a good thing. Man, my expected. Coming up, not a banner year for banks, but is this one-stop finance stock poised to grow along with its clients? Kramer's got the CEO next. All right, what's it going to take for SoFi Technologies, the disruptive online bank, to finally put in a sustainable bottom? 
even before this company became public uh, via SPAC merger a couple of years ago, uh, we were following it because SoFi is the bank of choice for millions of young people. I figured there was a great long-term growth story here, and sooner or later the stock would reflect that. But every time the stock starts roaring, something happens. Something throws it off course. SoFi spent most of last year in the meat grinder because it's seen as a money-losing fintech play. Two of the most hated categories at the time. Then early this year, the stock caught fire only to totally lose its momentum again because of the mini banking crisis. Or just, just look at the last few weeks. On May 1st, SoFi reported what I thought looked a real good quarter. Clean top and bottom line beat. Raised full year forecast. Yet over the next three days, the stock lost 22% of its value. Why? Because SoFi didn't sell any of its loans that originated in the first quarter. Uh, the bears say that's because they couldn't find any buyers for the loans, which would mean that the business model is in peril. The bulls say SoFi simply didn't want to give them give the stuff away. And they had all the liquidity in the world. They had 37% deposit growth for in the quarter, for heaven's sake. So who's right? Why don't we go by to an old friend of the show? Let's go to Anthony Noto. He's the CEO of SoFi Technologies. Get a better in the situation. Anthony, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, thanks for having me. All right. Head on. Why didn't you sell those loans? The biggest reason is the fact that we can get a better yield on those loans, sorry, a better return on those loans at about 6 plus percent versus um, selling them about 4%. So they're marked in our books at uh, approximately 4% yield. We think we can get a 6% or better yield just based on the simple math of the coupon that we have versus the life of loan losses, less our cost of capital. And so that's one reason to hold the loans. The second reason is we actually have the capacity to do that. Because we have a bank license, we have a lot more funding capacity. We have $10 billion of deposits. We have $8 billion of warehouse lines. And we've only used about 40% of them as of the end of the first quarter. And then we have $3 billion of equity capital. That allows us to hold loans longer to capture that better return of 6%. Yeah, but what happens if the loans go bad? How many are going bad? What percentage? Uh, about 3% life, uh, annual losses okay. um, relative to that 13.2% uh, uh, coupon. So the, the reality is that if we can hold the loans longer, we get that yield. It shows up in our net interest income line, right. which has grown to $200 million for the lending okay. P&L, up from $50 million. And you'll relate to this. When it was at $50 million, that wasn't a big visible recurring revenue stream. Right. But at the balance sheet that we have now is generating $200 million of net income. That's recurring visible revenue. We don't have to just rely on selling the loans. But is so. the 3% loss going to 4 or is it coming back? I mean, 3 sometimes can be a hazardous level if it's going to go to yep. 4. In the marks that we take on our gain on sale model, yep. the 104s, they assume a life of loan loss that's above the 3%. We're assuming for this year about 5.2% okay. unemployment. Uh, just a bit, little bit over 2% negative GDP growth, and that's factored into the marks that we put on our loans that are on the balance sheet. All right, so if that's the case, then why aren't you being, ma- uh, being valued, say, at this incredible member growth? Or does this not matter? Is this just some sort of fanciful metric that you're using? Because, you know, I don't know, having a 5.7 million members that get a lot of different privileges seems like something that American Express did and became a great company. It matters a ton. We, we've driven revenue growth of over 40%. We've had eight consecutive quarters of record revenue. Our margins have expanded to 16% on EBITDA. Our EBITDA is now greater than a stock-based compensation, so it will be gap profitable by the fourth quarter. It's driven by the members, which are growing more than 40%, the products that they take, which is also growing more than 40%, and that's what's leading to revenue growth over 40% when coupled with our tech platform that's also growing very nicely. All right, so let's say you sold off all these loans. It would, would it wipe out your profitability and it was just please who? It would please the shorts? Who the heck would it please? I'm not sure who it would please, but our responsibility is to maximize and optimize return right. on equity relative to our capital and our leverage ratios. We ended the quarter at a 17% 
our leverage ratio, that's equity assets, that can go down to the low double digits. Because we have the capital to fund the loans, we can continue to do that, hold them, get a 6% return on assets instead of 4%. Now, what I saw in 2018 is we had rates rising. Right. We held our loans at that point in time. In 2019, rates started to come down a little bit. There's a lot more demand for the loans. It was actually a better ROA than holding the loans, and we sold them. I think you'll see the same thing here. All We're right, going so to hold the loans to maximize the ROA, and when rates start to come down and there's more of a bid for selling that's greater than holding, then we'll look at selling. But there's no one answer. It's like, how do you drive the best right. optimal return? Okay, so... When there's no one answer, I actually looked at something that is on short supply. I look at character. Now, I have known you for half my life. I have worked with you. The part that I didn't know you at, you were an Army Ranger, a West Point graduate. I have a hard time believing that the man I'm looking at, that I've done so much business with, no, is somehow trying to run some sort of flim-flam operation over people. So at what point can you just say, you know what? Let me show you how right I am. Or is it just going to take a long time to play out? I think it takes a while to play out. We, f- we fought our butts off, fought our butts off to get a bank license. That bank license is allowing us to do what we're doing right now, which is picking the choice that's the best ROA for the assets that we yeah, have and therefore the return. Many people aren't focused on this. Our bank has been gap profitable for three quarters. It delivered a 20% return on equity return already, and that's with the leverage ratio that's not optimized yet. So we're finding the right balance between holding loans and selling them, how we fund them to drive our cost of funding lower, and to make sure we're managing our risk relative to liquidity in the marketplace. And so if we just keep delivering these returns um, consistently and over time, it'll show itself out but, in the valuation. But if you keep delivering these returns and the stock stays at five, then why doesn't another bank buy you and just make a killing? You'd have to ask the other banks. I think we're building something incredible that's going to be great value long term. I tell the team sometimes you have to survive a sell rating or an attack on your company. And once you do and you come out the other side, people understand the company better. Your results are rewarded better and the value is eventually seen. So as tough as it's been, it's been a great period for us to educate investors and build a great stable understanding of what we're doing and how we're doing. And it's not like all this chatter, these sell downgrades or anything, the seven billion. I, you, here, I got one right here. It says you need equity. You got to raise equity right now in order to be able to meet your meet with the regulars would say. True? That's untrue. We have a 17% equity to uh, asset ratio, which is our leverage ratio. That can go down to the, the low teens. So we have the capital to fund the loans, and we have capacity in our bank holding company leverage ratio. Those are the two things that would indicate when we need to raise capital. And I, I think the other important point in all of this is as you think about the revenue streams of the company, are those revenue streams sustainable? Are they durable? And are, are they visible? And having net interest income in this environment is incredibly valuable to us. That means we don't have to start at zero every quarter. And that, as I said, is at $200 million up from about $50 million a year ago. Well, there you go. I mean, I think that the people who have been trying to get me to say bad things about you are telling you they're not going to have good luck. Well, okay. well, I appreciate it, John. All right, absolutely. That's Anthony Noe. He's the CEO of SoFi Technologies. And, yes, a longtime friend. And you can say, oh, Kramer, you're in the bag, Anthony. I'll tell you, you know what? Never. Neither one of us ever do like that. Man, money's back in people. Coming up, it never hurts to build up your defense just a little bit more. With earnings afoot, is Palo Alto the right fit to protect your cyberspace? And your portfolio? Stick with Kramer. We 
We know businesses are cutting back on tech spending. That does, definitely does not include cybersecurity, something that became clear when we got another set of amazing results from Palo Alto Networks after the close, PANW. I like to call Palo Alto the cybersecurity kingpin, which is why we own it for the Chapel Trust. Big position. Tonight, they posted inline revenues better than expected billions and a monster 17-cent earnings beat off a 93-cent basis. At the same time, they gave good guidance for the current quarter and also raised their full-year forecast, even though acknowledging it's challenging times on one of the stocks running after our trading. So can it keep climbing? Let's take a closer look with Nikesh Arora. He's the chairman and CEO of Palo Alto Networks, who's about to celebrate five years at the helm, five years where he's created a tremendous amount of value. Palo Alto shares have gained 180% since he took over. S&P, just 64%, same period. Mr. Arora, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you for having me back. All right. So, Nikesh, I keep seeing these companies in the business not doing that well. They're smaller companies. And I'm wondering what's happened is rather than thinking that cybersecurity uh, companies aren't spending, companies decide to spend with one vendor. And that vendor of choice tends to be you. Well, Jim, uh, first of all, thank you. Yes, it is close to five years. And I think five years ago when I told uh, the world and you and many of our customers that we're thinking about figuring out how to platformize cybersecurity and be able to do the cybersecurity, what has happened to HR software, what has happened to CRM, what has happened to financial software, they all said, well, this is not something we want. We don't want platforms, we want best of breed solutions. I'll tell you what, five years later, with north of 14 products in leadership categories, we have built three platforms. We are seeing the beginning of platformization of cybersecurity. And honestly, it's very exciting. It's exciting to be able to start a trend of platformization, especially when you're seeing an economically constrained market out there. Now, let me ask you, uh, we're seeing constraint. You admitted that it was a challenging time, but it's also a time where there is artificial intelligence. We keep hearing about it everywhere. I need you to, to help me. My partner, David Faber, says that in the end, we could all be impersonated. We could all be hurt by this. I am saying that there are people like Nikesh who can protect us. I'm counting on you, but also use it yourself to be able to save money for your institution, which is maybe one of the reasons why it's such a huge beat. Yeah, well, look, Jim, from my perspective, you know, there are two very, two very clear lanes for cybersecurity or AI for us in cybersecurity. One is, you know, we just told people we launched a project product called XIM. XIM is something we worked on for five years, and we launched it four months ago before ChatGPT came out, and we're seeing a huge amount of interest because we apply north of a thousand AI models to try and solve the security problems for our customers. So that's sort of one area which I won't belabor because we've been using AI for the last seven years to solve that problem. But the question is, which Dave and you're talking about, is generative AI. Generative AI is this amazing ability which writes points for you, it you know, does audio, video, all these amazing creative things that it does, which I think has huge applicability both in how we do customer support, how we build products that become easier for customers to use. I think there's gonna be tremendous amounts of efficiency and customer happiness driven from that at one end. I think on the other end, it obviously has tremendous opportunities in the way it can drive efficiency in how companies are run. And I think I'm a full believer in that. I think uh, I was talking to my CFO and our colleagues, I think the next three to five years as we double the business, we probably could get it done with a few thousand people as opposed to having to go scale headcount in proportion to the size of the business. So I think it's gonna be huge from efficiency, customer satisfaction, customer benefit automation perspective. To the extent where it is used by bad actors to create bad outcomes, you know, we have a team working on figuring out how could bad people use AI? 
And we have, we're generating malware, we're trying to see how to protect customers based on that. We're generating new techniques for attacks using generative AI in our labs to see how we produce antidotes and solutions and make those available to all of our customers so the bad outcomes of AI can be protected against. To the extent it's gonna be used by credit people to create deep fakes or your voice or my voice, I think that's something we're gonna to have to contend with as society, and I'm sure we'll find workarounds towards that. No, I've already heard conversations about people having safe words in families to make sure that they cannot be fooled by deep fakes or bad AI. All right, well, I wanna go back to what something you said about efficiency. I have heard a lot of CEOs say, you know what, we're gonna use this and we're not gonna necessarily have to hire a lot of people, or maybe we're gonna be able to trim these, but no one has been able to identify a single person who does not need to work and needs to go to another company because of AI. Will you please tell me where you're gonna get those savings? What departments are not needed or can be slimmed down because of AI? Well, I think we will, I'll give you an example. Look, when I had my team, uh, it takes us about 12 to 15 days to build a marketing narrative around a whole new product. So we took a lot of documentation, took our own proprietary large language model without going and putting it out on the public internet or sharing company secrets out there. We ran it through the AI model, and this thing did something which takes us two weeks to do with six people. It did it in four hours, okay? By prompting it, encouraging it, trying to tweak it here and there. But I got savings where six people were spent two weeks doing this. We got it done in four hours. But as we begin to find these use cases around documentation, around customer support, around answering questions to our employees, you will discover we need less people as we scale our business to solve those problems because a lot of that will be pre-created by AI. Got it. Got it. Thank you. Now, it has been uh, about five years. We're at a leadership conference. I think that Nikesh Aurora is a tremendous leader. But what I need to hear from you is how you do it. What, what's been the lesson? You came in with a company that was good, but it was a limited company. Uh, you had to really break at 10, 20, 30 eggs to make some sort of omelet here. Give us a sense of what you needed, what you did, and how it's worked. Well, I think, Jim, first of all, thank you. Uh, look, I think what was true is Palo Alto Networks was an amazing company to start with. It had a great culture, and it built by my predecessor, who was one of the highest integrity individuals I have ever worked with. We had a phenomenal product uh, that was great at firewalls. And it's actually a fragmented industry. The largest player in the industry had 1.5% market share, which is very counterintuitive in technology because technology ends up being a winner-takes-all market as you experience, whether it's search or it's social, you look at technology and it ends up being a market where the winner takes off. And I wondered what is it that security is, diff- is different about security that is not allowing this consolidated vendor to appear. And I discovered it's the lack of platforms. And we spent the last five years building the platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did that because we had a phenomenal amount of cash on our balance sheet. We did a bit of, bit of acquisitions to pay some technical debt. We went and did a lot of innovation. And effectively, you know, one thing I learned from you know, being at Google with Larry Page you have to really focus on the product. If you don't focus on the product in the long term, you're dead. So we really put all of our energies and all of our brain cells as a company to go out and build the best products to deliver the best outcomes for our customers. And if you do that, everything else falls into place. You know, no company in technology has ever become great because they had only a great head of sales or a great CFO. They only become great when you have phenomenal products. So our commitment to our customers is we will build the best security products to solve their problems, to get them the outcomes they need in security. We'll take on the complexity, we'll take on the problems while they go about doing their business, and we'll make it simple, easy to use, and something that delivers the security outcome of protecting them in their digital way of life. 
People keep telling me that uh, there's still some consolidation to come. But when I see what you have on your platform, I don't see any of these companies that falter. I don't see why they would possibly want to be in that you want them in your portfolio. Well, Jim, I think we have a phenomenally uh, comprehensive portfolio across multiple swim lanes in cybersecurity. I think this portfolio allows us to be an evergreen cybersecurity company. There's tremendous amounts of potential. And I think with the, with the arrival of generative AI and the tremendous amount of focus and the amount of innovation that's going on in there, I think this is going to give us all another lease of life. I think we'll get more efficiency, more margin expansion, more ability to go out there and deploy our products to more and more customers. So I think this is a gift that's been given to the tech sector and it's for us to decide how we leverage it. Do we end up on the right side of history by winning or we end up becoming a victim of this? Well, all I can say is congratulations on the first five years. Just amazing, amazing outperformance. Nikesh Roar, Chairman and CEO of Palo Alto Networks. Thank you, Nikesh. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much. Everybody's back after the break. It is time. It's time for a special CEO Council edition of the Lightning Round. After taking calls about fire, you say the name of the And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski down to the lightning round. Here's got Tom in Connecticut. Tom. Hey, Kramer. I have a position in Cleveland Tom. Cliffs. Do you consider CLO? Whoa. A buy, heller, a buy hold. Why can you? I, I, would, I would cashier that, cashier that, and buy the stock at Nucor. I want you to trade up. Let's go to Kevin in Texas. Kevin. Mr. Kramer, first time, long time. Honored to speak with you, sir. Okay. Thank you. Same. I'm retired, living off dividends. I saw this stock had a 12-year history of uh, stability and paying good dividends before the pandemic. So I bought the stock during the pandemic when it was on its way back up from the trench. But now I'm down 67%. Should I sell or hold Chimera? Chimera should be sold. That thing has just been a terrible stock for a very long time, and it will probably remain such. Mark in New Jersey. Mark. Jim, what's going on? Almost a year ago. Don't quit your day job, my friend. You called the top in gold, and sure enough, it crashed all the way through October. Well, I was wanting to get back into gold, and I wanted to ask you about Newmont Corporation. I think you got horse sense. I like new mine here. Gold has been through the ringer and it has come back on the other side. And I think that is a good stock, Don. How about Quinn in Florida? Quinn! What's up, Jimmy Chill? I want to talk a little bit about quantum computing and AI with you. Uh, so quantum computing is always okay, five years away. But IonQ is claiming that they are on path or even ahead of schedule to reach a real quantum advantage in computing by 2025. Now, with the beginnings of the AI bubble beginning to form, is now a time to start building a small position in quantum computing? Okay. I know quantum computing is going to happen. I know it's big. But you know who's going to be solving it ahead of everyone? It's be Jensen Wong from NVIDIA. That stock's coming in way too hot to tomorrow's quarter. If that gets hit, then I want to buy, buy, buy because of quantum, not just because of what he's doing in generative AI. And I'm not done yet. I'm going to Barry in California. Barry! Hey, Jim, how are you? I am good. How about you, sir? Good. I'm Barry from California. I'm a first-time, very long-time, and an early subscriber to the club. Love. How can I help? 
Uh, in fact, France and I met you in Redondo Beach on Saturday. Anyway, I'm calling you about shit. S H Y F. I don't think. Last mile delivery. Last mile delivery. I am still going to suggest that you go with GXO over this company, but it's interesting, Spec. And we had talked about it when I was signing bottles. I probably would have said, you know what? For Spec, I think it's okay. And thank you for coming to see my wife's uh, production. How about Natalie in New York? Natalie! Natalie, speak to me. Come on. Speak to me. Hi, Jim. Thank you so much for taking my call. What are your thoughts on Oracle stock? I think it's still too high. I think it's coming down a little because this market's gotten real ugly. I want to buy it below 90 if possible. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, is real estate headed for a reckoning? Kramer takes you to the top floor next. I go, including beautiful Santa Barbara, all I hear about is the looming commercial real estate catastrophe. I'm told it could be so devastating that many banks in this country will go under because there's so much leverage keyed to buildings that are seeing downturns all over the country. It's not just the work from home situation or the layoffs from tech companies or even crime, which always gets thrown into the mix with retail. It's the fundamental overbuild with a dearth of tenants, but a ton of debt that's kind of like mold creeping through its way, the system rotting it. There's just one problem. I don't believe it. I don't believe it's the end of the banking world as we know it, like I keep hearing. To anyone who's freaking out about commercial real estate right now, where the heck were you in the 80s and 90s when one-third of the savings and loans in America went under thanks to far, far worse overbuilding than we're seeing today? It seemed like every SNL was in on it, and some of those SNLs in California and Texas looked big enough to take down the entire financial system. Plus, we had rampant fraud in the SNL crisis. There's nothing comparable to that today. Back then, there were loans granted to people or companies that didn't exist, to builders who didn't build or who overbuilt. The contagion spread from Texas to Florida, California, Washington, uh, like wildfire, only getting to pretty much everywhere, including my hometown of Philadelphia. By the time it was over, the savings and loans needed a bailout of humongous proportions. Something was unprecedented until the Great Recession hit. But when it came to commercial real estate, I think the SNL crisis was worse than the financial crisis. Few who traded through this period would disagree with me. Of course, because of all this was happening in the 80s and early 90s, pretty much nobody opines about stocks professionally, remembers how any of it happened, or even knows that it happened, let alone how quickly the economy bounced back, even as so many formerly iconic institutions disappeared overnight. I, on the other hand, know well. I happen to be sure to use a number of these SNLs like everyone else, and what matters was whether you could get a borrow, meaning whether you could find shares to sell short, because everyone knew the reckless institutions that were in trouble. They disclosed their bad loans, but their stocks kept climbing because of all the short squeezes. If you could just hold on, though, they were all eventually seized, and then the profits were immense. Once the saving and loans went down, we went after the real estate investment trust, crushed them, and then the banks themselves. And then one day, the government decided it needed to get into the property business to clean up the mess. So it invented this Resolution Trust Corporation, the RTC, which then took over failing institutions, accumulated massive amounts of property before selling it. Those rich enough to buy things made fortunes, creating actually the first big billionaire class. Now, it took six years for the entire process to pan out, and it panned out magnificently for the nation and the banking system. We got a recession in 1991 because of it, but even that ended quickly when the Federal Reserve literally created a yield curve that allowed the remaining banks to recapitalize, save themselves. 
The SNL bottom came in October of 1990, right before the United States got involved in the first Iraq war. It created such a strong rally that by the end of February 1991, you were done for the year if you were in the hedge fund game. You could go into cash, wait out the next 10 months, and still have tremendous performance. Now we're hearing the same story, except it's probably just one-tenth the size of the SNL crisis. One-tenth! It's so small that it's impossible to see on most bank balance sheets. And those days, uh, these days, banks really have to disclose things. They didn't have to back then. A lot of it's on insurance company balance sheets, but those are impenetrable. Some of it's owned by real estate investment trusts, and the worst of those will go under or be sold and dealt with. But, but frankly, there aren't that many of those. We'll get through it okay. Yes, these are bigger buildings than back then, and it'll be a real pain tearing them down. And unfortunately, they need to be torn down because it's usually way too expensive to try to convert them into residential real estate. They are worth more blown up. All of which is to say that while I'm not tired of hearing about the coming commercial real estate disaster, I want to put it in the context of been there, done that. And this time, there will be no resolution trust company. You know why? Because we just won't need it. I like to say there's always a bull market summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer.